Hello, this is Dan Chagru, and welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast, where I explore the relationship between music and commerce by talking to musicians, mostly guitarists, about how they got their start and how they make ends meet. Elliot Fisk is the first guest on this third season of the More Art Than Science podcast. Elliot is one of the godfathers of the classical guitar in Boston, having taught at the New England Conservatory since 1996. He is, in my humble opinion, one of the great five pedagogues of the classical guitar in the USA, and arguably in the world, having taught not only at the NEC, but also at the Mozarteum of Salzburg in Austria since 1989. Many of the previous guests on the More Art and Science podcast were students of Elliot's, he is, without a doubt, a get for me on this podcast. I have to admit, I was a bit starstruck during this interview, and that, combined with Elliot's larger-than-life personality, left me, is this an excuse, to give him a wide berth on answers to questions. Elliot is passionate about music and the intersection of music, justice, hope, and change, and my hope is that I allowed that, a passion, that passion to shine through. So Great. So... Welcome, Elliot, to the More Thank you. Science Thank podcast. You. Great to have you here. Great to be um, here. I've, so as, as you know, we, we, we talk on this podcast about how people make it, uh, you know, make ends meet uh, in the music world and usually oh, with the guitar. It's a challenge these days, yeah. It's, it's definitely a challenge um, in, the, in the midst of a pandemic. This is the first episode I've recorded um, post-COVID um, oh, wow. or during COVID. Um, but before we get into that, which is, you know, a topic all of, of its own, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, Elliot as a young child growing up and how, how sort of music entered your life, in which way, was it through your parents or, you know, et cetera? Well, in my case, a very interesting question. Um, I was born in 1954. My brother, my only brother was born, my only, well, I have a lot of adopted brothers, but my only blood brother was born three years after me named Matthew and he had Down's syndrome. Uh, so at that time in American history, the resources for dealing with Down syndrome people were so limited, so pathetic. And uh, so that that immediately puts you kind of outside the pale of American normalcy and especially late 1950s, you know, that that American normalcy was the Brady Bunch back then. I mean, it was, you know, the the white paternal, you know, patriarchal family model. That's what that was. That was America and nothing else existed, you know, in the popular consciousness you know that's that's just that's how the country saw itself you know or at least the, the powerful people saw themselves that was that was the prototype so right away we were outside of that prototype um and uh it came to be a big issue just just finding decent care for my brother i mean he was not you know he was more functional than a lot of down syndrome people but there were there was there were no educational facilities in the, in the community there was no way to do anything for him and so my mother <clears throat> had this idea that <clears throat> maybe one way to, you know, get the family together to do things and distract my brother because he was very, very active, you know, and, and, and needed to be watched and, and all of that. And so she thought, well, one thing we can do is we can sing songs uh, with a guitar accompaniment. So she sent my father out to buy a guitar. Well, he had played, my father had played a little bit of banjo in college. So he came home with two of the worst musical instruments ever built on planet Earth a banjo and a guitar. He got them both for a hundred bucks, which, uh, I don't know. Back then that wasn't such a small amount of money actually, but they were, they were horrific instruments. So I started on the banjo that lasted about a month. It, it, it was a terrible instrument. It had, I was seven. It had, I just turned seven. They, they, the strings in the banjo were, were hot. You know, action was high. They were steel strings. They cut into my fingers. I hated it. And so I, then I picked up the guitar and I was, after three months, I was still trying to teach myself guitar and I remember the day that my mother asked me well would you, you know would you would you like to have lessons and the idea that we would have enough money for lessons was completely it just sounded like an idea from planet Mars I mean that was so far outside my conception of what what would be possible and I said well yeah maybe I don't know so anyway my parents were members of the Quaker meeting in in uh, the Philadelphia area and they asked around in our particular meeting just by chance a member of the meeting was the first double bass player from Eugene Ormandy's Divine Philadelphia Orchestra, which okay. remains the most beautiful sound I've heard on planet Earth. 
and unforgettable the sound of Ormandy's Philadelphia Orchestra in the in the 1960s uh, until until you know Ormandy stepped down. I don't know, probably in the 70s he stepped down. The sound of that orchestra was has never been never been approached or or duplicated or anything anything remotely like it that I've ever heard before or since. Anyway, Roger Scott was the first double bass player, so he said to my parents, "Well, if he's going to study guitar." He should study classical guitar because if he learns that, then he can do anything else. Well, that's, of course, completely false. <laughs> but, but anyway, in that way, my parents asked, or Roger asked around, and, and we found this um, man who, who named Peter Colonna, who had been uh, more, of a, more, more of an auditor at Segovia's classes at the Academia Chigiana than anything else. Um, Peter Colonna was not a great teacher, but at least he didn't turn me off. I never practiced at all until my father had a sabbatical year one year in Sweden. So my parents and I took the boat at that time to get to Sweden, the nine day trip across the Atlantic. And it was very kind of magical, you know, trip. And then we got off and um, um, there was no, um, no English speaking school. So my parents just stuck me into a Swedish elementary school. I had skipped second grade, so they basically had me repeat the sixth grade, but the material was, was quite different from America. And anyway, it was all in Swedish. So I had to learn Swedish. Well, it took me a few months to, to, to do that. And, and at the time, I had, I had read my way through all the books we had. We had brought about 50 books in English. I read them all in the first month, something like that, or barely. So I had read all the books. It wasn't, I had the guitar. There wasn't anything else to do. So I started to play the guitar. I mean, actually practice. You know? yeah. And I had, I had a very nice teacher there who was a lovely guy, but not, not at all professional. You, know, I mean, you can't imagine the level of guitar playing in the early 1960s. I mean, this is like 64, 65, something like that. No, 65, 66. So, I mean, you know, it was basically I was doing a lot of self-teaching. So I came back from that year in Sweden, completely bilingual, Swedish-English. And uh, then we were trying out a new guitar at a guitar store in Philadelphia. And, the, and people at the store said, you've got to get this kid to build viola. And so we went to build viola's house, 1840 Rittner Street in South Philadelphia. And I walked in and played for him. And I was used to you know, playing, people would be impressed. He didn't move a muscle, he wasn't impressed at all. Then he went through all my music, looked at all the editions and de declared that just about all of them were useless. And at the, end of, at the end of him going through all my music, the only thing that was left was Segovia's edition of the 20 studies of Sor and Segovia's transcription of the La Frescobalda Variations by Girolamo Frescobaldi. Well, seven years after that day, I was sitting in Segovia's hotel room playing to Segovia. Segovia had always been my inspiration from the, from the very, of course, in that time, if you would get, get a, a record, you would get, a, you'd get a, you know, an LP of Segovia. So I knew the Segovia records. Yeah. And Bill Viola, I only studied with for two years because we moved from Philadelphia. But those two years I worked with Bill Viola, he was, he was an absolute taskmaster. And he was, he was so tough love, I don't think he gave me one compliment in two years of regular lessons. And then he would take his, his big pen, and he would go down. He made me make a list of all my pieces. Then he'd write down. Okay, next week, Fandanguillo by Turina. Uh, study in thirds by Sor. Etude number one by Villa Lobos. Sonatina by Moreno Torroba. Prelitude Allegro by Bach. I want to hear this, this, this. Five pieces every week. He'd bounce all over the place. And I had started to work really hard. I would get myself out of bed at five in the morning in order to practice. You know, I would, I would, I would be, the alarm would go off at five. I'd get out of bed. I'd be dressed and practicing by 5.15. I'd practice for two hours. I'd inhale breakfast. I'd run down this, by the time we, we had moved to Syracuse after Philadelphia. But basically my, my pattern was the same in Philly or in Syracuse. It became even more extreme. When we moved to Syracuse, there was no teacher in the, in the city who, could, who I could work with. So my only teaching was in summer master classes uh, with Oscar Guilla at the, at the Aspen Music School. But Oscar would give maybe five lessons, you know, at most seven lessons in the, in the, over the whole summer. So again, there was a lot of, of course, listening to Oscar's classes, which was great, but a lot of self-everything. Mm -hmm. Then I went to Yale, of course, and Yale there was no guitar teacher. Yep. So at, in my sophomore year at Yale, I met Segovia in person in his hotel room, which was a great experience. And a week after that, I met the genius American harpsichordist Ralph Kirkpatrick, who was on the faculty at Yale. Yeah. 
And those two really became sort of my most important mentors. Although I didn't, you know, I didn't see Segovia all that much, but we had a tremendous connection. The moment we saw each other, I think I can say it was mutual. It was kind of a more recognition than meeting because I had listened to Segovia's records so many hundreds and thousands of hours. Yeah. And I had practiced all, I knew all of his editions. I knew his entire repertoire. I knew his way of playing everything. And when Segovia, Segovia, when I met him, didn't play the guitar in the lessons. He was 81 and I was 19. So our ages added up to 100. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Segovia would just sit in a big armchair about a, a yard away from me and solfege everything. You know, do re mi, everything. And, and uh, so, but if Segovia suggested a new fingering or anything, I, 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 could, I could learn the fingering immediately. I was, you know, or I might have seen him do it on stage also. In those days, it's not like you could you could dial up to YouTube and you could watch, you could slow it down, you could go back. No, you sat in a big concert hall, you know, 100, 300, 400 feet away from Segovia. And you had to, you know, I, I knew all the pieces, I knew his repertoire very well from the recording. So I would remember all the fingering changes that he did. Uh, okay. Way up into old age, he was making fingering changes. When I was... When I was a professor in Cologne already in the mid in the mid 1980s, he came to Cologne around 1985, very near the end of his life, and he played this big concert, one amazing, and he made a lot of changes, and I and I had a friend who had uh, who had a guitar store, and I said among the pieces he played was this Sonatina by Moreno Torero, which he played for 50, 60 years on the concert stage, of course, and I said to my friend, I said my friend Heiner Fiertmann had a beautiful guitar store in Cologne, I said Heiner. Let me have a copy of the uh, Moreno Toroba. I want to write down the changes. Nice. So that, that that's how we had to do it, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was not, you know, the, the kids these days have, of course, a tough road and that the competition is so, so fierce, but they have incredible resources at their fingertips as far as, you know, two, three clicks they can do. We used to have to write off to libraries to get a microfilm of a, micros, of a, of a manuscript. Then you come home, you stick this clumsy microfilm which is this terrible black and white reproduction of a manuscript. You stick that in this micro, microfilm machine and you, you put your, your head up next to it like to, to read, to kind of scroll through this, you know, dinosaur-like film thing, you know. Now it's, it's three, a maximum three mouse clicks and you've got, the, you've got it on your computer screen. You can hone in on it, you can do whatever. So technology, of course, is, is a double-edged sword. Here we are able to communicate in this pandemic uh, and yet, of course, all the crazy hysteria and, and, and anti-scientific fact that the that the inter- internet is, is is belching out into our yeah. into our, our world and 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 you know, I just saw a very interesting Netflix special about all these people who kind of who left the tech industry out, out of out of moral moral concerns. And they're yeah. saying basically the algorithms. It's even out of Zuckerberg's control now. The algorithms are, are it's like this, this film, 2001 in Space Odyssey, you know, this uh, mad computers taking over and the algorithms are deciding all this stuff. People don't have to do anything. Zuckerberg doesn't even have to do anything. His algorithms are running the world. So the classical guitar is the opposite of that, right? It's the most, it's the most bow and arrow thing there, I mean, it's bow and arrow technology in an in in, in, the, in the internet age, you know. So, it's, so why would anybody want to do it? Why would anybody want to work so hard to do something so difficult? You know, when 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 you can click three three times on a mouse and 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 hear, you know, thousands of hours of recorded guitar playing by very great masters. So why would anybody well, want to do it? Yeah, well, so so there's I mean, there's a, many cans of worms that you've opened now. So the, the, yeah. the, the tech as a tool versus a weapon aside, which is another podcast. Uh, or, yeah, or, huge. Um, For years, you could talk I, about I, that. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, just just from a pedagogical sense, you know, I mean, you're, you've taught or you are teaching at two different universities. Um, and one thing that I've noticed just raising my own children and, and you know, having grown up play mostly uh, rock guitar and classical guitar uh, a little bit in college and then as a, as a hobbyist afterwards. Yeah. Something that I've noticed, uh, you know, in the last 20 years as let's say as Google, YouTube, you know, Zuckerberg, et cetera, as the uh, quality of, or the maybe not quality, but the um, accessibility of teaching has become easier. Like you mentioned, instead of going, you know, to the library to look up the manuscript or to get the microfiche, you know, and look at it, we can. It is, you know, the fingerings and somebody playing it, uh, pick your piece, somebody playing it or working through it or showing you how to play it is two or three clicks away. And it seems as though that has made it easier for people to become 
at least proficient at playing instruments. So in, a, so in other words, it's, it's not a matter of, uh, it, it's still a matter of, I think, focus, um, but it's not a as much a matter of uh, resources or time. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you have a, a, a take on that. I mean, do you see the, the, I mean, you mentioned that the level of competition has gone up. So I would, I'm assuming that maybe can you say a word about what you mean by that? Is that like, you know, the competitions themselves, GFA competition, or do you mean just that the level of playing has risen? Well, I think both, you know, I mean, the, 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 the technical level has gone up considerably. No question about that. But the, the real tragedy is that the sensitivity level hasn't gone up. Yeah. The quality of musicianship hasn't gone up really. Um, and worst of all, people are getting confused in my view. They are trying to outdo the machine. Yeah, right. Human, human being can never outdo the machine. The human being has to celebrate what the human being does well, which which is be be creative, uh, and 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 create an individual voice. So what I work with with all my students, every single one of them, I have a poetic way of talking about it, and I have a very business like way of talking about it. So I'll start with the poetic way, um, and I say, look, nobody on earth can be a better you than you yourself. So we have to look inside of you, take that uh, injunction from Islam about how each person is, is, a, is a universe. And we have to find all the things about you that make your story. What makes your story special? What makes you special? What can you bring that no other human being of the however many billion we now are can bring to this music? And how can, how can I free you as a teacher, technically, musically, and in terms of historical and theoretical knowledge, how can I free you so that you can make the most of your decades on this planet and contribute most greatly to the, to the, to the forces of good on the planet and also somehow pay your rent and eat, yeah. maybe have a family. <laughs> so those, that, that's, those are my kind of spiritual goals with, with, the, with people I work with. I know I've got, I've got a few private online students, including Actually, my favorite group to work with, in a, in a way, are, are, are the what we call in our Boston Guitar Fest the adult ed people. Because I think th these people have always been, if you look through music history, these people have always been the lifeblood of music. I mean, uh, Mozart, Mozart, uh, you know, he he learned he learned uh, the the music of Bach and Handel from the Baron von Swieten, who was who was a, a diplomat in, in, in Vienna who had a, a collection of music. He didn't have all that much, but what he had was really good. And so Mozart for the first time was exposed to, and Haydn as well, you know, was exposed to certain works of, of Bach and Handel that, had, that were hard to get or that they didn't know about. Mm. So, or whether it's the Prince, you know, Lishnovsky or all the people that Beethoven dedicated his sonatas to, you know, there's always been these people uh, or like the Esterhazy family for Haydn, you know, they gave him these ideal working conditions, which were just fabulous. I mean, one of the reasons that Haydn was able to write so much music is he didn't, he really didn't, he hardly had to teach. And the idea was that Beethoven was going to go to Vienna and, and, and you know, learn, learn the, great, the great classical style from Haydn that, that you know, that um, right, you know, direct from the great master. But of, of course, uh, Beethoven got there and, and, and Haydn was, was very old and, I don't think that they that they you know they particularly had a lot of student teacher anything, but the 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 point the point is that is that in order for art to flourish yes you need artists but you also need a public, and you need people enlightened enough and with resources sufficient enough that they can that they can uh, in a sense be patrons great great or small patrons of the arts and enable the arts, yeah. um, the arts actually are as most people know a far better investment of public money much better in turn on investment than building a football stadium but football stadium gets all the gets all the you know all the all the press and 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 appears to create so many jobs but except in case of pandemic where, where everybody's kind of shut down now but in normal times the arts are are far more it's sort of like a, it's sort of like an ecologically sound business you know you can you can drill for oil and bring oil up out of the earth and you can make you can make all kinds of profit in the capitalist model but 
The only reason that's defined as profit is because the numbers are all false. In other words, the GDP is calculated without subtracting for environmental damage that you're going to have to fix later. So all the numbers of capitalism are, are really are trumped up and false, and they're, they're, they're a big lie. And, and so this, they, they just are, because there's no, there's no subtraction in the GDP for environmental da damage. I mean, how would you calculate it? It's very difficult to calculate. But the numbers are all funny, and the stock market going all over the place, it's, it's, all, it's, it's, it's smoke and mirrors. So real productivity uh, is, is different. And if you really wanted to, mention, to, to, to measure the productivity of, of the arts in people's lives, I mean, it, it's, it's, it would be an astounding factor. So it's a very, very important, very, very important task of an artist to make contact with the, with the enlightened few in a society who are able to appreciate the arts. And these people have, have been, have, 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 are, are absolutely priceless. And one of the things that really interests me now, and I haven't done much of it, but I love it, people. I mean, I, have a, I had a, for a brief time, and he's kind of taking time off now, but I had a wonderful private student who, who discovered the guitar, I don't, I, way above 50, you know, and just fell in love with it. Hmm. Well, that's, that's a beautiful, amazing thing. Yeah. And even for somebody, you know, people say, well, why would you want to work with somebody who's not advanced? In fact, it fascinates me. Um, I'd, you know, really, sorry. Um, I'd, I'd really like to figure out a way to hone my pedagogy, to create a method for advanced amateurs, or maybe not even, or even beginners yeah. at age 50. Because it, it, I, I really think that it's, it's a tremendous uh, boon to, to people to have something that they could, to be able to enter this magical world. And the thing about the guitar is, of course, you've got the whole history of Western music in one place. Because our repertoire really does start back in the 1500s. You can legitimately, and you could give to, to an aficionado some of those beautiful pavanas by Luis Milan that were published in 1535. And they are quite playable, some of them. You know? yeah. And just to have that under your fingers, to make that yourself. It's an amazing thing, and it recalls it recalls an earlier time where the where the where the survival of life on the planet was not threatened in the way that it now is. You know, where the where the where the where you know human beings now created powers so vast that would have been inconceivable before. So, this music comes from a, a, an astonishing time when you think that people were dreaming all of this up without benefit of any technology or any recording or any tricks, they had to imagine all this music and write it down and put these pitches together in, in, in the, in, according to certain very stringent rules of, of, of counterpoint and create these incredible spiritual spaces that I, I, I just love to, to take people through them. You know, and you, really, you can just do the history of Western civilization the last 500 years. You can do it through the guitar, you know, because the guitar in one place, you know, can we, and obviously we, we steal from our own heritage, which the stuff I was talking about is, you know, old Spanish music from the 16th century. But um, you can, as, as Segovia showed, you know, you, you can transcribe from the, from the harpsichord, from the piano, from the violin, from the cello, uh, on and on and on. So the guitar really is sort of like a portable, a portable orchestra, but also kind of a, a portable history of Western music that even, even, for, even for aficionados, you can find simple pieces, not that hard to play, uh, that encapsulate all of this. And so I'm, I'm very, very interested in that. As kind of, it's kind of a, you know, a, a, a recent... A, a recent interest in mine because earlier of course I was very interested in developing great virtuosos and I've had some incredible students you know come through my studio here in Boston as well as as the studio in, in Salzburg and before that when I was in Cologne the same the same thing so I, I mean as you as you mentioned I'm I'm right now quite actively teaching on 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 two continents but when we did when we when we retooled the Boston Guitar Festival Boston Guitar Fest we took the whole thing online Yep. In four days this past uh, uh, June into July one, and we we were across four continents, sixteen time zones, and we were basically operant from eight in the morning until about ten or eleven at night our time. One of the things we did was a morning joint joint taught masterclass, where my wife Saida Menezes and I were joint teaching with one of my Chinese disciples in Shanghai. So we were. 8 in the morning in America, 2 p.m. in Europe, and 8 p.m. in Shanghai. Right, great. 
Yeah. So this was the real this was the real global village. And if you think uh, of the a mathematical analogy, you have an x-axis and a y-axis, right? So the x-axis we have now, in real time around the globe, almost even no matter what time of, of of day or night you might wake up. Well, in my case, I have some friends somewhere in the world who's who's awake if I want to call it. Talk, you know. So the idea is, we are slowly if we can get through this pandemic and, and, and kind of heal the division in our society, we are, if, if the human race comes to its senses, we are creating a, a global village through this economy in, in a sort of X axis, let's say a, 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 a lat, in, in, in a latitudinal. Mm-hmm. But for all of us, think about the Y axis going back into, as, 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 as an analogy, going back into time. So, there's this, there's a line going right back from from now back you know back through the 20th century and back through the 19th century through you know, through, through, through through Bach and and, and Handel and Scarlatti and Frescobaldi and you know and Froberger, going back you know another century or two and then going at least back to 1500 there's there's a longitudinal line and in fact these geniuses of the past are probably a lot more meaningful for us, for us than our own blood ancestors i mean i have I have a recollection of my grandparents, you know, um, but I don't have, I have seen a few family photos that survived of, you know, but the people, once you get beyond, you know, two generations, it's really, it's so remote for most yeah. people. You don't really have a relation with those people. Whereas Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn, it's like they're family members, you know, that, yeah. that we care so much about them. We want to know, we want to read their letters. We want to read biographies of them. We want to know every little scrap of information we can about these people. So that's our longitudinal line uh, back to the past. And an artist or any person interested in the arts, I think, uh, should ideally embody these, these, these ways of reaching across uh, back in time to humanity and trying to recover you know, these wonderful insights, these one, this wonderful inspiration that goes back in time longitudinally, and right now that connects the family of humankind, because we are planetary inhabitants, we are inhabitants of the same planet. Yeah. All the, if you are up in a, in a space capsule and you look down, there there are no lines. The, right. the, you right. know, there are no lines separating country. Yeah, yeah. Just rivers and, and, and that's that's the ultimate reality that a musician. Uh, uh, necessarily kind of conceived. And Beethoven put it, of course, into the most graphic form in the famous final movement of the Ninth Symphony, which in which he set the first stanza of the German poet and, dra- and dramatist Schiller. He set Schiller's, you know, uh, Ode to Joy. And that's, that's particularly in these challenging times, that's that I, I often think about that piece. And I think about, you know, when the baritone comes in in the last movement, he sings a few words that are not Schiller, which were stuck in there by Beethoven. And what Beethoven, what Beethoven has his baritone sing is this long melody, oh, fra, you know, oh, Freunde, nicht diese Töne, oh, friends, not these sounds, sondern lass uns angenehmere und freudenvollere anstimmen, but let us sound um, um, more pleasant and more joyful. Sounds and that's where comes Freude, 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 schöner Götter von Kentochtaus. Then, then the Schiller starts. But before the Schiller, Beethoven stuffed that kind of recitative intro in there. Yeah. And he, oh, by the way, he only sets the first stanza. And if you read the whole Schiller poem at the end, it's 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 a radical, a radical vision of forgiveness and uh, what the Germans call Versöhnung, which is a reconciliation. Even, but even he even speaks Schiller at the end of it. He speaks of, of you know, embracing the worst criminal, and welcoming that criminal as part of the human family. And he speaks of forgiveness and, and reconciliation. And so Beethoven has never been more topical than right now. And it, and it just so happens this past year was would have been a humongous, you know, two hundred fifty years of Beethoven's birth celebration which got which got you know cut to bits by by covid yeah but uh, but uh, he certainly remains you know a tremendous inspiration i mean you think about this man he's, he's handicapped most of his life you know and it, for his hearing to go of all things to go his hearing went yeah. and he's driven more and more into, into into his own into his own world and yet 
one of in one of his last works, the uh, Opus One Twenty Five, the Ninth Symphony, is this as he said, "Seid umschlungen Millionen," be embraced, you millions. I mean, it's a it's an astounding hymn to the unity of of humanity. And so I think that that's I think that's the national you know the, the national anthem, so to speak, of Western music. That's the vision. That's the vision all the dreamers have had, and 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 those of us you know mere mortals. Uh, you know, um, traversing the surface of the planet, still, you know, the, the light of that of that of that genius shines on us, and our our work is is as much as we can to put forth those ideals, to live by them, and to act by them, and 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 therefore, the classical music business model of the star system is a repugnant one. <laughs> because it's it's utterly repugnant. Yeah. Because I mean, if Jesus could wash the feet of the disciples, that's the first thing he does, right? Every time he meets the disciples, he washes the feet of the disciples. That's the first thing he does. So whatever religion you are, that's a pretty amazing guy, you know. I mean, that's an amazing thing. And Martin Luther King spoke in very similar terms, uh, in in especially his, in my view, greatest final speech, uh, the mountaintop speech uh, from April third, nineteen sixty eight, the eve of his assassination. And that's where he has that prophetic vision and says, you know, I, uh, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land, you know, and I'm so grateful to God he's allowed me to go up to the mountaintop and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And uh, he talks in that speech, he says, you know, um, he speaks about all these honors he's had and said, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't really remember, you know, all the honors and the prizes and all this, you know, he said, but he said, but you know, if you know, if if when I'm gone, just just tell people. But Martin Luther King did did try did try to love somebody. And did try to, I did try to, you know, I did try to feed the hungry and I did try to clothe the poor and I did you know I I did you know, in his 39 years on the planet, you know, he he was one of those who really remained pure and 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 uh, true to his, you know, to to, to the great ideals. I hesitate to, yeah, it's the, where, where you're going here is very, very deep and, and beautiful and very well spoken. And I, and I have what now seem like quite mundane questions for you. So right. I almost hesitate to ask, but, uh, but you have so much experience. Uh, and one of the things that I'm, I'm very interested in is the differences between the, um, the students that you've had in the U.S. versus Europe and, you know, how they you know, after their university instruction, how they get on in the world, you know, and, 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 you know, I hear things, or I've been to Europe, you know, several times, but I've never tried to make it there as a musician or even professionally, you know, in, in, in my day job. Um, so just what is the, from your perspective, what's the good of what they're doing in Europe? And I'm talking about pre-pandemic to support the arts versus what we do in the U.S. Is no, there no. anything that we're doing better in the U.S.? And, you know, how would you balance the two? Like, yeah, I can really speak to that because, I, especially because I, I think I've, I've known elite European uh, educational institutions from the inside and, of course, elite American institutions from the inside. Um, the great thing about America remains the, uh, the lack, the lack of, of self-censorship in thought. It's getting a little bit worse now because there are certain things you cannot say at universities, you know, um, in the, and we understand that, that, you know, hurting people's feelings is not permissible, but the right wing has a point about, about the left wing being, I mean, you hear, you hear absurd stories. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the worst one was with this professor who, who was teaching Chinese and was teaching words in Chinese uh, that, that are, that are, Commonplace, and it sounded like it sounded like the N word. Yes, a couple of African American students, and they, this brilliant man who has no racism in him at all, yeah. is being suspended from Asia University because in Chinese the two the, you know the two words that mean something completely innocuous right. sound like the N word. Yeah, in 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 English, you know, and I mean that's just that's just crazy to say nega nega is um in Chinese, so right can sound like yeah. I mean, completely, completely unacceptable, you know, and ridiculous that a guy had you know, and but on the other hand, we understand that this country has such a such a sinful past on the issue of race that 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 something could be ticked off. But anyway, or 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 
unnecessarily hurt, you know, uh, which which just shows the, the depth of the hurt and the, and the and the work of truth and reconciliation that needs to be accomplished in America without without any any question about it. But get back to the difference between the European and the American system. Uh, here, it, it's just it's basically here we've sort of got I would say sort of a uh, uh, what they call Raubtier Kapitalism. So we have sort of a, a, a a jungle kind of capitalism. We really are. We are going back much more to survival of, of uh, not even of the fittest, but it's because it's a completely un, un, unfair playing field that we've got. But um, you know, in America, when they when there's a financial crisis, everybody gets fired. Bing, your unemployment goes off the off the charts. And in Europe, everybody gets knocked down to eighty percent, but no, not nearly as many people are losing their actual jobs. In Europe, there is a social net. There is a social net that's frayed, but still, still kind of works. You know, kind of works. And over here, we, we it's been savagely attacked by the by the by the the, the richest, tiniest minority, and they've they've co-opted all these other people to vote against their own interests and 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 destroy all the systems that would have made their own life lives better. So you have that in in music as well. I mean, it, it's, okay. it's, it's so over there, you've got. You've got a whole lot of little, you've got sort of lower level kind of teaching jobs. There are enough that people can kind of, kind of with, if the, if the partner works also, they can kind of put together a middle class life, almost middle class life and get through. Okay. Those jobs are getting, are getting more and more onerous and less and less pleasant. But they used, there, there, there are still enough of them that they, they you know, the, the Europeans kind of made their deal with the devil. They'll, they'll, they'll take, you know, the, the, the sclerotic, excess of bureaucracy, which kills initiative, they'll take that at, 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 because it, it gives them a sort of a, sort of a, a safety net and it, and it prevents them from, you know, radical, uh, radical injustice between rich and poor, such as such as we, you know, in, in our country, we've, we've, we've accepted. So in Europe, if you've got a niche job there, you're much more secure. But on the other hand, I tried to do a guitar festival in, in Salzburg. I did one in 2017 and it almost killed me because in, in my own school there, I had to, I, every time I wanted to do something, it was like 10 or 12 different departments. Like each little thing had its little, you know, it was infuriating. And then I raised about, I don't know, $40,000 for the festival, including $10,000 from my own school. Well, the, the Austrian government came in and ate half of my money, including the money from my own school. <laughs> they came, I got 10,000 euros from my school to, start, to help jumpstart this project. And the Austrian government at the end came in and ate half, half, half my money. And I had another friend who gave a big donation. And the state came in and ate 50% of it. Yeah. So the fees that I was going to pay the people, which started off as being decent, ended up being pathetic. And, and, and plus, I killed myself. I didn't pay myself. Right. I just killed myself for about six months. Really killed myself. And I put together a fantastic, marvelous, miraculous festival. But I'll never do that again. I'll never try that again. Whereas in America, you know, here we are with our little Boston guitar festival, and in the middle of the pandemic, we went uh, we went online. We started to go on, online. Nobody thought it could work, and we made it work. Not only did we make it work, we ended up in the black. We ended up in the black to the point that NEC said, "Look, we really can't take in any more money because it'll jeopardize our grant our grants because our grants are predicated on us doing much worse." Well, of course, we had lower expenses. We didn't have to pay as high fees. We didn't have to fly people in. We didn't have to pay a hotel. So we saved a lot of money there. We cut a lot of our expenses. Then we got this extra donor at the end that get, that that threw some thousands of dollars at us, which enabled us to give tremendous scholarship aid to to people like especially from from. From Latin America, who didn't have you know, didn't have you know dollars to to pay, so we were able to we were able to to run an amazing fest where we had a big Latin American contingent, we had a big Chinese contingent, and we had our usual American contingent, and, and we had people we had we had fantastic artists who were generous in 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 reducing their fees, but also who didn't have we didn't have to do their hotel, we didn't have to do their air, airplanes, so we had you know. We had had a little bit more money. The point is, and the American model is is high risk, and you know gives gives a chance. It still gives more of a chance to ent entrepreneurial people. Uh, you have you can you can you can you know the, the tax system. The whole thing is set up to enable you to one way or another be able if you're creative and inventive, uh, you know really do something. I mean, a, 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 an absolute star example would be obviously Adam Levin. You know who's 
who's a one, obviously one of my one of my most beloved disciples, and who really, in every way, um, I mean, Adam and I go back so long, and he started off as you know flying in from Chicago for a week and take a double lesson, flying back. We, he did it all during his undergrad because he wasn't even, you know wasn't even totally sure, although he was super talented, he wasn't necessarily sure if he was going to go that way or the pre-med way and finally he just got to the point that he he, he couldn't he couldn't resist and he said I, no i've got to do music and then he came to the masters at, at nec but that was after we had done very intense four years of private very intense private lesson we did we i mean he he got an encyclopedic tour of the guitar repertoire and and you know we had a lot of fun together if paco de lucia came to town you know we'd go backstage and say hello or something. so adam was i just had a specially close relationship with adam but he's also one who's really turned it into um you know amazing amazing things that he's doing now that are you yeah, know amazing. i basically basically I, I i he's one you know he's one of my points of reference you know he's really you know, yeah. if, I, if i i ask adam for advice now. <laughs> So I would, I mean, I, I don't, I would think, I tend to think of Adam as a little bit of an outlier. I mean, he has a, he has a production function that is uh, inspirational to me. Um, yeah. I, I'm curious, like if, if, if you were to take, again, pre-pandemic, you know, 10, 10 students, you know, obviously you remain nameless from NEC, mm. and 10 students from um, Mozarteum Salzburg, and I apologize for my pronunciation. Um, That's right. In yeah. the last two years. Where would where are the ten in the U.S. today, and where are the ten in Europe today? I don't know, like you know, three are teaching, or two are. Giving. Everybody's teaching these days. There's nobody who's not teaching. Nobody nobody does just playing. There's not enough work. Okay. There's not enough work, and it doesn't pay well enough, and it's too erratic. And for example, thank goodness that I have two teaching jobs right now, or, or I don't know where we'd be, you know, <laughs> because a third of my income disappeared immediately when 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 the, the pandemic hit i mean i had a wonderful wonderful exciting season of fascinating unbelievably varied projects set up that was one of my every, questions. Yeah. everything everything disappeared everything it's all gone you know and yeah. now maybe this or that little thing kind of you know they're kind of making trying to reschedule well we're trying may now we're trying for may 2021 Maybe it's going to be, you know, end up being fall 2021. Maybe it's going to, you know, the GFA, I was supposed to be featured artist of the GFA. I was, you know, I got their Hall of Fame thing and all of that. And instead of that, that's 2022 with yeah. luck. Hopefully we'll actually be in person back in 2022. Yeah. yeah. Because the airline industry has to come back to get us there. <laughs> another another big story. Yeah. But actually that one third figure is, is, is helpful for me. So if, you know, pre-pandemic, pre one third of your revenue is essentially coming from con concerts. Or, or more, or more, or depending. Uh, and, and you're a person who is lucky enough to have begun their career when CDs were still a thing. You know, so thir 30, if I'm not mistaken, 30 CDs you've recorded. Oh, I, I don't even know how many, a lot. <laughs> well, I don't count them. Plenty available on your website, some of which have, by the way, you know, the, the, you know, click to CD Baby and they're not there anymore. But you know, yeah, I just got tired of yeah. CD Baby. They're yeah. just they're just so. At, at any rate, at, at one point you were getting royalties, I'm sure, from CDs. Oh, I never made any money on recordings. You never. can you can forget okay. that. No, I never made it. I, n nobody who's honest ever made much money on a classical recording. The recording okay. is more is more to 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 keep your concert work going okay. and it's a snapshot of your own nowadays cds are really archival so that you can capture things you know if you, that you've got worked up and you just want you just want to have you just want to have an archival record of what you've done okay. um, you know and and so i mean no the the, the classical music classical music i mean a big a big sale classical music cd even even really big people it's like has been five thousand, ten thousand. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. And now, of course, everybody does a Spotify thing for seven dollars a month. They have everything in, ever recorded. You know, they have twenty thousand or thirty thousand or fifty. I don't know how many hundred thousand. You know, things they can they can access. So, so I'm I'm curious. So someone like you, I mean, you have a, a large, a very one of the largest catalogs in classical guitar world. And I've spoken to many musicians who have. Uh, some or all of their stuff on Spotify. And I know uh, for the majority of, it depends on a, a algorithms among other things, but I know that people get 0. 0.0008 cents per stream. It's like, it's, it's ridiculous. It's laughable. Is, is, 
do, do you see money or do you see checks from Spotify or does it come through like some of the people? I mean, I don't even remember. I don't remember anything from Spotify. I mean, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's wired into some bank account that I'm not paying attention to. I mean, I don't make a cent. I don't make a cent off of it. No. The, nowadays, I think, I think actually nowadays what's needed, first of all, is, I mean, playing, playing is, is still a sacred and wonderful thing, but the, you know, there's so many people chasing so little work and the money is the money hasn't really it has i guess you could say maybe it's you know it's kind of holding steady i don't know what it'll be post pandemic i mean now for the pandemic you know it's 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 pathetic you know the, the it's it's the amount of effort to play a concert even if, the, if you pre-record or if you do it live or whatever you do it, the amount of effort is is humongous and the, and the, and the pay is is miserable so you know i think i think really in terms What's needed actually is is a hell of a lot of education. We we basically have got a ravaged we've got a ravaged musical ecosystem. It's been completely similar to the uh, to the ecosystem in, in, in on the planet. It's been ravaged, and it's going to take a, a long time for the old growth to come back in the forests, and for the for the water to get clean if it ever does, for the air to get clean if it ever does, for global warming to be to be slowly halted if it ever happens. So we're in the same situation in the arts. Basically, all the whole infrastructure has to be recreated. You've got to go out and find people who care about this, who will support it, who will who will at least want their kids to be educated, uh, uh, educated in it, and and that's what we've that's if what we've you, got to work towards. If you had a magic wand and you could you know build a new music infrastructure in it from the ground up in a post-pandemic world. What would be the pillars? Would, would it be, I mean, you mentioned benefactors, find the people who are willing to support. Is it, is it a benefactor model or is it something different? Mixture, it's gotta be, it's gotta be multi, multi, every, every possible, every possible angle that you could. And I think, you know, what, what, in the old days, music was in all the schools, at least singing was, you see. And now there's, there's, you know, at best there's maybe a, there's maybe a band that plays at football games and maybe does a concert. I mean, you're lucky if there's, if there's a band. Now, some people have done really creative work. There are, in, 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 paradoxically, in the state of Texas, I can think of two cities that have done a great job integrating the guitar into the educational system of the city. One of them is Austin, Texas, yep. where the Austin Classical Guitar Society is, is miraculous. And that's a role model for anybody on, in the world. It's almost unique in the world. And that's really due to the tremendous energy of Matt Hensley, who's you probably know Matt. He's a, kind of a genius. And Matt's the, one, Matt's the one that built that model, showed it could work, adapted the model, to all exigencies, including right now the pandemic, and he's really showed that could work. I, I have another a former student from NEC named Edward Grigasi, who's in Houston, and he's got you know he's part of a program. I think they have seven, eight hundred guitar students in the Houston public schools. You know, which is which is of course a weakness of, of, of classical music in general and of the guitar has been, it's it's been way too much the province of white America, and we we think of the astonishing musical talent that we've lost. That's 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 all over the place in in, 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 in in Black America or Latino America. I mean, the musical talent that classical music's lost by not by not getting into the into the into the hearts and minds of, of people in communities of color is yeah. is tragic, and I, I I would certainly like to address that. I mean, yeah. if if music's got all these wonderful ancillary healing qualities, and if people of color are 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 disproportionately uh, subjected to inequality uh, as they are, I mean, maybe this, maybe this could be, maybe this could be part of a, of a solution. Now, um, rap music, let's say, or or what is now called African American music, is, has moved very far from the blues and gospel kind of roots that used to have a much more direct, um, you know, parallel in in classical music, but. You know, I don't, I don't see why, why, uh, why that's. You know, I, I think there are, there might be all kinds of possibilities, you know, to reach out and and to use music as as a unifying force in the culture and and, and as a and as a as a as a means of of of, of uh, supporting a, you know, a truth and justice, uh, kind of kind of kind of model. Yeah. So I I think I think um you know. It, Speak. You asked the question about the ten and ten in Zalzburg. Where are they? And the ten here. Well, the ten in Zalzburg have, have, have all got some kind of a, you know, teaching job somewhere, and they're playing smaller concerts as they can. They're getting their name out on the internet as they can. They're producing their CDs as they can. They're building their fan club as they can. 
you know, and, and in America, it's, it's the same thing, except, except that more likely they've created some little organization or they've created some little music school or they've, they've been much more entrepreneurial because the American system allows it. Whereas in Europe, they're kind of trying to find, you know, trying to find jobs that are, that, that are you know, used to be sponsored by the government. And now with all those governments also feeling the pinch, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just not sure what, what, post, what post-pandemic looks like. It could be, it would be normal to think that after all the suffering, that people would have, people would have a need in the post-pandemic world, even a greater need for music and the, and the consolation that music brings and the, the, the joy that music brings. And I think, you know, classical music shot itself in the foot for so many years with those ridiculous competitions, which were based, which were, which were necessarily corrupt because there's no way you can come to a fair decision. You can't know enough about the candidates from their playing in a competition to really know who will be the, who you should anoint as the as the best ambassador for the future of music. Well, it makes it more of a sport than an art, right? I mean, it's a, a competition. Well, it can be. Sport. It can be. It depends. It depends who's in the jury and how and how open-minded they are. I mean, I had the experience. I've refused to, to, to serve on juries. I would have made an exception for the GFA in 2020 because they asked me to be in the final on the jury. And I'll, I'll, if they have the contest in 2022, I'll be in the I'll be in the final jury one day, you know. Um, but I think it's, it's impossible, it, you know, it's impossible to, it's impossible to, to, to make a, a fair judgment in, in a competition, you know, As you, ju- you, just, you just really can't. And um, so, I mean, I understand what their, what, their, what their usefulness is, and I also understand what their, understand what their, what their detriments are. But, but, I mean, imagine, imagine if, you, if you were going to a trade fair, in another in, in another industry, and and at the, at the trade fair, you gave the top prize to the person who came with, you know, last year's technology, last year's model, perfectly polished up. That would never fly. No. What would what will take the prize in in, in, in even in, in, in the capitalistic system? Would take the prize is the new idea, the exciting new idea, the growth idea. The person who who may not may not have the, the new invention 100% worked out, but what attracts venture capitalism? Oh, that can really go someplace. You know, yeah. so what we need, what we need in the world of music is, is the creativity of people. Uh, and, 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 and we can't be as, as risk averse as that old, that old system was making us very risk averse, you know, right. and I on time and be respectful of your time. I have, I have two questions. Yeah. Uh, the first one it, it, uh, has to do with, so your, your body of work, I, I love the CDs. And I've seen you play, I've had the uh, good fortune to hear you play live. And I love hearing you play live. I think you're, uh, well, I mean, I, you know, I, many people have said you're one of a kind. Um, so I won't, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> um, Gilbert Lilly, too okay. much. Yeah, so, <laughs> it's, so, so you're a singular performer. Um, the, the thing that I've noticed, and, I, and I'm sure you've noticed it too, so I hope it's not, I, I don't think it would be embarrassing, but like, but when your live performances are captured on video on YouTube, especially, something falls, something. Oh, yeah, falls. They don't, it doesn't work, I know. I don't, and I, I don't know, I couldn't tell you what, why it is. I'm curious when, it, first of all, do you know? <laughs> and second of all, do you tune it out completely? Because there are, for anybody, there's always going to be vicious. YouTube is a vicious place. There are vicious comments about. Stuff. Yeah, I, I don't read them. If I did, I'd jump off a cliff. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you anybody, anybody that 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 most, I think, I think that they're mostly inspired by uh, you know uh, envy and, ing- and ignorance. So I, I can't, I can't be too focused on that. It will just, it will just make make me less productive. So I don't, I don't ever, I don't, I, I don't like to watch any of my performances yeah. on YouTube. I don't like to listen to them. I don't pay any attention to them, and uh, I realize. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. But the CDs and the live performances both so good. Why is it that the capturing of the live? I mean, do you have a, a sense for how, how that it happens? Because it's it's something that's happening now in this in the pandemic. Everything that we do is in some way it's two D instead of three D, right? Yeah. And so like, I'm not seeing you in the flesh. I'm seeing you on a screen. Uh, I don't know if you know if you were to play live now, you know how it would sound relative to uh, hearing you in a room live, which I love. Um, it, it, in other words, I don't know if it's if it's is it the live bit that's that makes it 
uh, full and rich? Or I don't, is it just know. I don't really know. All I know, yeah. all I know is I, I can only play by ear. I can play by what I hear. And I think the YouTube, YouTube and in fact recordings always elevate, always elevate the the more accurate more accurate person and always take away from the more poetic person that's almost it's almost an axiom of recording of recorded sound so going and, back to the technical versus the art art well it, it just does you know it does yeah it just it just it just does and um i don't i don't really know why that is but that's always that's always been always been the case so Oh no, I, I can't I can't really worry about it too much. I mean, I'm no, too I'm too busy trying to make art. I'm not suggesting you should worry about it. By the way, before I get, come to the last question, if you do figure out how to get the you know the older amateur uh, class going, I'll, I'm first in line for signups. Just just to let you know, um, we'd love to be a part of that. Um, um, and, and then uh, oh and. It, just again, coming back to one of your first things that you had said about technical versus artistry. And you know, so technology has enabled a lot of technical prowess, right? But, but you focus with your students on bringing out the artistry. But you yourself are an incredible technical player. And I'm just wondering like for a, for a, you know, a, a, a 14 year old who's learning to play versus a, or a 45 year old who's picking it up for the first time, how would you divide up the time spent between technical studies versus bringing out the art or discovering the art either in yourself or in a piece how do you do that even well i learned it i i learned technique playing pieces i never i never like to practice scales or abstract technical studies and i and one thing i really disagree with 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 almost all the guitar pedagogy books is first of all they 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 deaden your ear because they just use the chromatic scale and they they don't use it in a in a musical a musical way. It's it's a simply it's a simple it's a simple fingers thing, you know? mm, mm, Okay. So they're they're repeating they're repeating physical things, and not only that, they're not teaching the students to imagine their own permutations, but it's like a long list of things, you know. Yeah. So instead, what I would rather do is is you know I I have my own set of exercises which teach ear training and theory at the same time as music so i think i think that's another problem that people have really got uh, really got sidetracked um in in this in this obsession with trying not to make mistakes so hmm. in other words they're trying to get to zero they're trying to get to zero mistakes and i'm trying to get to 100. <laughs> so that's a different that's like a different kind of aspiration they want to get to zero and i want to get to 100. Nice. Well, that's a different kind of aspiration. So yeah. if you want to get to 100, you're not going to get there. You know, you're going to miss, you're going to miss some things along the way. But it's a different kind of aspiration. But if you want to get to zero mistakes, okay, maybe you can get to zero mistakes, but you haven't said anything. It's yeah. just you know you can you can you can speak, you can read the phone book to somebody, and 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 you can pronounce it all perfectly, but you've just read the phone book. That's different from breathing life into something. Um, it's different. Uh, uh, you know, a simple a simple reproduction of of pre-existent material is one thing, and a creative reimagination of something is something else. Okay. So that's 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 where I come down on that. Nice. Last question. So if if I want to, I would love to do an outro, and you've said some very inspirational things. I'm, I'd love to do something from you know your catalog that that you think embodies some of the things that you've spoken about as, as far as aspirate hope and you know moving us towards a post-pandemic world where are or whatever well what something by elliot fisk what would be the piece that you would choose to to end this uh, interview with someone you know someone who hasn't heard you play before or whatever i don't even know what to say i mean i can there could be could be many things i i really i really wouldn't have I really wouldn't have an idea of 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 what to pick. I mean, there there are so many ways one could go. I mean, one thing I think I thought about that question actually before, and I and I and I and I came to the conclusion that I didn't know how to answer it. <laughs> so maybe the best of you. Why don't you just pick something that you like and and and, and okay. use that? Because I really, you know, I don't I don't have any perspective on my own on my own work. I'm too busy trying to do more of it. Do the next one, okay. Do the next one, yeah. and I appreciate the uh, trust. Yeah. <laughs> so I will do exactly that. Yeah. Okay, 
Elliot Fisk, thank you very much for your thank time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Beautiful answers. Uh, it's been, it's been a, a pleasure. Thank you also for me. Thank you so much. We are about to wrap things up here at the More Art Than Science podcast. But before we do, allow me to beseech you. If you like this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Doing so helps others find the show, which in turn helps the artists that I interview find more fans, which in turn helps fill the world with more and better music. Do your bit. Okay, so you heard it from Elliot. He wants me to choose the outro music, and it's a tough, it's a tough one um, because he has such a large catalog and uh, he's recorded so much. But at heart, I am a traditionalist, and I go back to Bach. Um, this is uh, Elliot Fisk with playing his transcription of Bach's Sonata Number no. Two in A Minor, uh, BWV One Thousand and Three, The Fugue.
Thank you.